This is a Woodside Church podcast. Well, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning. You're looking well. Are you feeling as good as you look? You're not sure, are you? Well, my name's Martin. I'd uh, love to greet you as well. It's fantastic to, to be together. Wow, that was a wonderful time of worship. And we've got a wonderful God. We've got a wonderful church family as well. That's what I thought. I thought, I love you guys. hope you love me back, obviously, but, uh, but I do love you anyway. <laughs> okay, we are continuing uh, our series, part two of a series that we've called Love. And uh, we felt it'd be really important to look at some of the big uh, the big questions our, our culture is asking, and so we'll be looking at uh, you know, transgender next week, uh, looking at uh, sexuality in general. Last week I did part one in homosexuality. I'd like to look at part two today. Uh, and so we, these, are, these are big subjects, aren't they? And so we want to really uh, do these uh, carefully and well and with clarity. Uh, I also would, would say that uh, we need to recognise that across the family, there's probably different views, uh, different stories, different contexts uh, that I'm aware uh, is the setting of what Woodside Church family is. Uh, and so we want to we communicate with grace and have grace to one another as we, as we unpack this together and look at what we believe God uh, says to us and instructs us in, in this important subject. One of the things that we found really helpful... Uh, certainly I have, in the, as I've prepared, is been reminded of words from one of the disciples, John, uh, when he wrote in 1 John 4, he said this, Dear friends, let us love one another. It's a good start. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. It's not, not that God is loving. No, no, no. He, he is love. Uh, and so all that we look at and uh, explore, we, we come from that place that we have a God who is love. And when he sent his son, that was a massive demonstration, the ultimate demonstration of a God who is love. And we found it helpful to look at how God demonstrates his love through his grace and through his truth. The same writer actually wrote those words, John, when he described Jesus. He said, there's Jesus, comes from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we see God's love in his grace, in in the fact that we can come as we are. Uh, It's not about our behavior. It's about meeting him, the Savior. And so we come as we are with all our stories, all our questions. Uh, This is a God of love that we come to. But also he said he's a God of truth. And truth means that Jesus stands for some things. There's some things that is the truth uh, as far as Jesus is concerned. But we actually see his love not only in the grace, but we see God's love in his truth. We believe God is a God of love. He is love and he demonstrates that through his grace and his truth. And so we're going to do, I'm doing my best job I can, as good as I can, uh, to look at what we believe the truth is. Uh, of, on these subjects. But I just want to say, um, 
you know, at the beginning, and I did last week, that uh, it's okay if you don't agree with me. Uh, this isn't like a, uh, a party line. We all have to say, oh, okay, Martin said, therefore, you can only be part of this family if you believe this. That's not how we operate. We will obviously share our convictions on these things, but of course, uh, you are free to wrestle with these things yourself. Uh, I mean, people don't agree with me on all sorts of things. My wife doesn't agree with me on many, many things. So you don't feel compelled to do so. I also want to say that I realise that for people in our family, this is, uh, and people that we would know and love, uh, this isn't an academic exercise. This is real. This are real lives. Uh, and so if you, uh, maybe you may uh, feel that you're gay or uh, LGBTQ+, or, or whatever other, other phrases, phrases that we're all pretty familiar with. You may feel that you're same-sex attracted or you know someone close to you who's same-sex attracted. I want you to know that God loves you and I want you to know that we love you. And God is a God who is love and so that has to permeate through everything that we are together. Uh, and so if you hear anything today, that's what I pray that you hear, uh, that we love you and uh, if you're grappling with these things or you're living with these questions, well, you've come to the right place. This is a place where wherever we are on our journey, uh, we find a place to belong. And we believe God's family is that ultimate place. We're all made in his image. We reflect who God is in how he makes us. And so we are uh, so uh, keen to make sure that we all know that. So we're going to look at this subject. I guess one more thing I'd say is that if you're not a Christian today, uh, then the best thing I can do is point you to Jesus. Uh, because it would be easy to, after listening to a talk like last week and this week and this series, you may think, oh, it's all about our behaviour. It's not. It really is all about a relationship with Jesus. It only makes sense if you meet him. And so, so it's great that you're here and, and you're welcome. And, and uh, you know, if you're asking these questions... Fantastic that you're with us today. Uh, but if you're not a believer, ultimately I want to point you to Jesus. Because actually it's when he does something in our hearts, that's when everything changes for us. And so please don't hear anything that we're saying you should or shouldn't. We're saying come and meet Jesus. He's the God that takes timber uh, and brings him hope that he never had before. Uh, I don't know if you know that his name, timber, means hope. God knew. And God knows about your life too. And so we're, we're really keen to, to discover God's passion for us. Okay, let me just pray for us, may I? Jesus, we love you. We thank you for all that you have already done in our lives. And Jesus, we pray, would you uh, speak to us and lead us as we look at this subject today. Uh, we thank you that you are God of grace and a God of truth. Help us to bring those things together as we experience your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Last week we looked at the Old Testament. I felt it was such a big subject. We'd be good to look at Old Testament last week and New Testament this week. And then I really want to get on to some questions that we've probably all got. Well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And what about this? I've got, I've got a lot. So we're, I want to get to those. I don't want to miss those because I think there's some real... How do we work this out questions? And uh, we've done our best to, to come and answer some of those. 
so Old Testament last week, so if you, there's a recording that you can listen to that, I'd encourage you to do that. But this week we really want to unpack the New Testament and what is the New Testament, uh, uh, the story of Jesus and the early church, what does that say about this subject? So we start, of course, with Jesus. Jesus, as someone said, Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. Or did he? Or did he? Let's get into to God's word to, to have a look at this. Mark chapter 10. Jesus gives the blueprint of marriage. But in that, we get some important principles that we will build on as we go through it this morning. Mark 10 verse 2. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this command, this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made man and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The context, of course, is divorce and remarriage, not homosexuality. In fact, we're hoping to look at this, the, the subject of divorce and remarriage specifically next year. But so, you know, let's, let's, it's really important to remember that the context isn't homosexuality. Jesus here, though, is clearly endorsing and underlying God's original design for marriage that we looked at last week. So what the Old Testament says in terms of God's original design, we see Jesus affirming that and underlining that. Jesus frames his argument in that way. But he only needs to quote part of Genesis, which is where he's drawing from to make his point about divorce. Married people who have come become one flesh and therefore shouldn't get divorced. Then why then does Jesus start also when he talks about God made male and female? See, Jesus is giving a framework of how he sees marriage and relationships coming together, which highlights the difference that there is male and female, and that he would say that's critical for marriage according to Jesus. Now, the pushback on this would be that Jesus is not talking about homosexuality directly, which is absolutely true. So we have to be careful what we are saying and not saying. But Jesus is laying a foundation for relationships. Jesus and homosexuality, Jesus didn't ever speak directly, as we've said. And there are good arguments from the silence that we see in the accounts of Jesus. Jesus never talks about the subject specifically. And there are good arguments from silence, but there's also bad ones from silence. Good arguments from the silence on this subject from Jesus use cultural information of the time to inform us what people generally believed in that time. See, some people will say that Jews had various views on homosexuality, but this is not true. Jews are known for falling out on many subjects, sometimes very passionately. But every Jew who writes on the subject of homosexuality for 500 years before and after Christ, agree that same-sex relations are against God's plan. 
So really, there's, there's no debate. In fact, if Jesus was in favor of gay sex, he was the only Jewish speaker in a thousand years to do so. So it's not impossible that the silence from Jesus on this subject means he felt something else. But equally, it's not likely. Even though Jesus never mentions homosexuality, when it came to sexual matters in general, in fact, he took a very strict stance. Uh, Jesus condemned the sins of adultery, sexual immorality, fornication, and even said what you do with your mind is a sin. In fact, it says if you lust with your mind, you've committed adultery. I'm thinking, man, Jesus, the bar is high. Of course, the point that Jesus is trying to make is we're supposed to turn to God. When we realize that actually this is the challenges of life and the brokenness mean that we cannot make the bar. And the whole point of the gospel is that we're not supposed to. The gospel actually says, no, 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 turn to God. Find healing and purpose in God. That's the point of the gospel. So although in some ways Jesus was silent on this issue of homosexuality, if you're going to read anything into that silence, you'd have to conclude, I believe, and I said you don't have to agree, I believe that Jesus stood with the clear teaching of the Old Testament of that day that confirmed that sex is reserved for marriage between a man and a woman. However, as well as this challenge, and it's a challenge I realise, Jesus has another challenge for us. Because... There's also much challenge from Jesus in those who hold more of a traditional sexual ethic. Because immediately after Jesus gives this most ethical speech in Matthew 5 to 7, he then heads out to the towns and the villages and interacts with with people that we need to recognise who Jesus interacts with. They're people who come from all sorts of backgrounds. One guy I've read on this subject called Preston Sprinkle, which I still think is the best name I've ever heard of. Preston Sprinkle says, Jesus' love comes without a background check. It's not about behaviour. We've got to understand what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. Because following the most ethical teaching, what's called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus then goes and spends time with different people. One was a Roman centurion in Matthew 8. He was a military leader in an oppressive regime. Although he was a pretty good guy, but he was a good guy in a very, very bad lot. Many Jewish leaders had opposed the Romans, some violently, but Jesus greets him and loves him and agrees to come and heal his son. You get a tax collector in Matthew 9. See, tax collectors are not like our tax collectors, okay? Tax collectors were Jewish sellouts to the Roman machine, evilly profiteering from the suffering of their own people. A modern-day parallel may be a drug-dealing pimp who funds terrorism. That's what tax collectors were like in Jesus' day. Yet after giving this teaching, he then says to them, come follow me, and says, can I eat with you? And so you get, what do you get? You get truth. You get incredible grace. You get Jesus wanting to connect with people like me. Again, Preston Sprinkle says this. Think about that. They, tax collectors and sinners, were drawing near to Jesus. They found something so compelling about Jesus that that they would draw near to him. 
And it wasn't because he was some postmodern poet who thinks that love means letting everyone do whatever feels right to them. Jesus was able to preach hard-hitting, biblical, saturated, ethically demanding sermons. And yet sinners and tax collectors were drawn to the presence of Christ. It wasn't because of their behavior was affirmed. It was because their humanity was affirmed. We're all made in the image of God. You see, if we believe that gay sex is sinful and we are truly following Jesus, we should have more gay friends, not less. That's what Jesus would do. Okay, you still with me? You haven't left the room yet? What about later on in the New Testament? What about Paul's writing in Romans? Let's just understand this. Paul in Romans 1, to chapter 1 to verse 3, I think I put it incorrectly on, the, on, on my notes. But from Romans chapter 1 to chapter 3, Paul spends three chapters talking about various different people. He talks about the Jews. He talks about the non-Jews, which are the Gentiles. He talks about a number of people whose behaviour is different to what he believes God would say their behaviour should be. The overriding message that that Paul is trying to say is everyone needs a saviour. Everyone needs to know Jesus. Everyone is broken. Everyone needs to find a restoration and redemption and forgiveness that can only be found in God. But in the midst of that, he highlights a few things. And so I want to read that because it's specific to the topic we're looking at. But I don't want you to hear that somehow Paul is singling out people. Do you understand? So, 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 so we're looking at some specifics about homosexuality because of our subject. But actually, Paul spends three chapters explaining we all need a saviour. You know, he who is without sin casts the first stone. That's what it means. But you understand why we're landing on the specific. Here, so Romans 1.24 says this. Therefore God gave them up in their lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonourable passions, for the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Paul is not writing this chapter to condemn people who are gay, or not to just condemn, or to convict. He writes that we all would be convicted, whether gay, whether straight, whether Jew, whether from other nations. We all need God's forgiveness and his freedom. But this is one of the clearest passages that show that same-sex activity is wrong in God's eyes. That it's a product along with other sexual sin of our rebellion against God. Now there are some arguments against this. So I want to just mention some things that people would say and just comment on them. Some would say, uh, would almost have like a, a, a cultural argument. See, some people say that New Testament writers, including Paul, didn't know about sexual orientation. And that's true in some senses. There is no ancient term 
for homosexuality or gay or lesbian as an identity in the way that, that we would commonly use it today. People just didn't think in that way. They didn't think, you know, that person is gay. They just didn't think like that. It wouldn't come up. So people argue that only New Testament examples were, were talking about pedestry, which is men having sex with boys. Sorry to talk about his subjects, but, but that that's where some of the argument goes, that that's what Paul was referring to, saying that that is wrong. He wasn't talking about broader homosexuality. So they argue it isn't even talking about monogamous gay sex as we would know it to today. However, while pedestry was certainly the most common, it's not true that New Testament times didn't have gay relationships like we have them today. In fact, Emperor Hadrian fell in love with Antonus is something that is well known. And so there are historical accounts uh, that say that culturally this was happening. N.T. Wright, who's a scholar, sums it up this way, which I find particularly helpful. There is a popular belief just now that the ancients didn't know about lifelong same-sex relationships. But this is easily refuted, says Wright, by the evidence both literary and archaeology. So that's the cultural argument. Secondly, it's, the second argument would be, it's natural for me. Because of the phrase that Paul uses, it says they gave up natural relations. So some people would say, well, hang on a minute, it is natural for me. But Paul considers it to be unnatural or against nature. And people do argue, they say, well, look at the animals. And animals sometimes demonstrate homosexual behaviour, so Paul must be wrong. And others, as I said, do argue that God made me this way. And so deny that same-sex attraction is unnatural. But Paul is most likely using the common sense of the well-known phrase against nature that was used in his day. It simply means against God's original design. Sam Albury from the book Is God Anti-Gay says this, All of us have desires that are warped as a result of our fallen nature. Desires for things God has forbidden are a reflection of how sin has distorted, distorted me, not how God has made me. Do you understand? There's also the excessive lust argument. <laughs> uh, there's different arguments, but uh, basically uh, what it's saying is that in Romans 127 it says they were consumed with passion for one another. And so what Paul's writing is to condemn excessive lust. And the argument goes that, that, that the desire was so strong that men got tired of having sex with women, that their excessive lusts led them to therefore have sleep with men. Uh, I don't think that's what it's saying. In fact, there's other, there's other versions in the there's other texts in the Bible that doesn't talk about uh, phrases like consumed with passion, but equally says that homosexuality isn't part of God's plan. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 puts it this way. Well, do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's other examples that don't use phrases like their, their passion uh, was excessive. It's important to note on that verse that, of course, it's describing those who don't know Jesus. The fact that they will not inherit the kingdom of God isn't that somehow behaviour becomes the trump card on whether we have uh, eternity with Jesus. It's really talking about those who don't know, don't know Christ. 
and of course, it's not talking about a Christian who struggles in a particular area. In fact, when I look at that list, you know, greed, I'm sure there's been moments when greed has been an issue that I've had to battle with. And there's other lists that, that Paul uses as well. I think what is interesting is what some well-renowned liberal thinkers think of the Bible's teaching on homosexuality. So being a liberal thinker means someone who uh, isn't conservative in their view of the Bible. Uh, Does that make sense? And so there's some interesting quotes from liberals. Let me just give you one of those uh, from uh, Luke Timothy Johnson. He writes this, I think it's important to state clearly that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be holy and good. In other words, liberal position is we recognise that the Bible has a stance, we just don't believe it. We just don't agree with the Bible's stance. And I, I, I don't have a choice on that. <laughs> uh, uh, this is a challenge, challenging subject, but I believe in God's word. And so, so, and we as a church, we say, okay, to our best, our best uh, uh, convictions on what we believe the Bible says, we, we, we place ourselves under Scripture, not above Scripture. There's another uh, uh, liberal thinker, uh, which I don't think I've got the quote on, but uh, which is interesting and very honest, to be fair, very honest. Uh, uh, Diamond McCulloch writes this, This is an issue of biblical authority. Despite much well-intentioned theological fancy footwork to the contrary, it is difficult to use the Bible as expressing anything but disapproval of homosexual activity. So to be fair to these liberal thinkers, they're saying, well, well we recognise what the Bible teaches, we just choose not to agree with it. And I, I've got such respect for that. You know, that's, that's, that's approaching it with real integrity. And so the decision is, is not what does the Bible teach. The decision is do we believe in the Bible. Do you understand? So, I've got a thousand questions. How about you? Uh, Tim Green and I sat in a, in a darkened room this week. Tim Green is one of the elders and uh, he leads the site on the West. And he's a very, 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 very wise man. Uh, and so Tim and I sat and we went through and we got some, some other resources as well and said, what are the key questions that we need to ask, be very clear on? What are some of the, the, the pastoral questions that we, we're going to come up against, we are coming up against? What are the questions that others outside of the church may ask of us? And how do we navigate all of that? Uh, now, we've done our best job. We've got 12 points here. So how long we've got? We're doing well. You're doing ever so well. So we've got 12 summary points which tries to bring all this together and probably answer or ask some other things that we haven't touched on yet. Uh, but if you have other questions that we don't cover, if you, you can email them to us to questions at woodsidechurch.com. One word, lowercase. Uh, questions at woodsidechurch.com and we will attempt over the series to answer your question. Uh, we won't name you, but we'll do it anonymously. But we want to try and grapple with this as a family together. But as I say, we've done our best job uh, at answering some of these questions. So the first one uh, that we would ask is this. According to the Bible, just to be really clear, is all gay sex wrong? According to the Bible, is all, all gay sex wrong? 
looking through both Old and New Testament, the Bible consistently teaches that sex is a gift from God and designed to take place within a committed covenant marriage relationship between a man and a woman. Therefore, any sex, any sex out of this context is clearly prohibited. This would include gay sex or or even a committed gay relationship, but would also include heterosexual sex, sex between a man and a woman that or a committed relationship between a man and woman that is outside of marriage. See, God has designed this incredible thing called sex. It's a beautiful gift from God. But it's designed to be in a context. It's like, it's a gift, but there's a safe place. There's a right place. And outside of that place causes harm, and it's not a safe place for this gift. The best way that it's been described to me, it's like a fire, like a fireplace. And the fire in the fireplace is, in, is like sex within marriage. It's in the best place. It's in the place that God designed for it. If a lump of coal ever comes out of the fire, that's when it causes trouble. And that's when it's outside of God's plan. But the best place and God's plan is that sex is within uh, a relationship between a man and woman within the context of marriage. Let's be honest, in today's world, I would say the bigger challenge for Christians as well is not whether it's gay sex outside of marriage, it's whether it's heterosexual sex outside of marriage. And so one of the things that really troubles me is how Christians tend to see a difference between sex that's outside of marriage if it's gay. Whereas actually sex out of some marriage is wrong, full stop. Do you understand? And so we just got to you know, look at our own hearts and look at our own scenarios. That's number one. Number two, is even having same-sex attraction or same-sex orientation sinful? Some say yes. We definitely would say no. The Bible doesn't talk in the sense of orientation apart from to say that all of our orientation is ultimately towards sin but Christ came to redeem us from the power of having to obey those orientations and in saying that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are which it says in Hebrews but yet did not sin the Bible clearly draws a line that there is a difference between temptation and sin what matters is not orientation or temptation in that sense, but behaviour and Christ's ability to cause us to want to change our behaviour. Christ's ability to cause us to change our behaviour because of the way he has transformed our identity and our relationship with God. It's a long sentence, but do you hear that? Did that come across? There's an organisation called True Freedom, which, and there's, there's a number of outstanding Christian organisations who are looking to help one another because uh, there's same-sex attraction. Uh, many of the people involved are same-sex attraction, but they're looking to help one another and others on navigating this. And the True Freedom organisation uh, say this, we believe that, the, that one consequences, I think there's a quote, thank you. We believe that one consequence of the fall is brokenness in all areas of our lives, including our sexual attraction and relationships with people. 
The wounds arising from this inherent brokenness require God's transforming touch, whatever our sexual feelings may be. So homosexual desire is not what God originally intended for us. Thirdly, are people born gay? Are people born gay? People strongly, come strongly down on both sides. No one really knows. We go, I think, beyond the Bible to affirm either way. The most credible answer, I think, is that both nature and nurture play a part. However, a recent genetic analysis of almost half a million people has concluded that there is no single gay gene. It's been a big report, reported on the BBC. If you want to Google this, BBC have got a full report on this. Uh, but one of the, the questions is, well, is there a gay gene, a single gay gene? Is that, is that what the, um, the answer is? And in fact, there's a quote here from David Curtis, who's honorary professor of the UCL Genetics Institute, University College London, it's a long title, said this, this study clearly shows that there is no such thing as a gay gene. There is no genetic variant in the population which has any substantial effect on sexual orientation. Rather, what we see is that there are a very large number of variants which have, so genetic variants, which have extremely modest associations. So the maximum, they said, was up to 25%. Uh, uh, but read the full report if you want to get into that. I don't claim to be an expert, but I thought that was a really interesting, interesting uh, research. Of course, in some respects, it, it doesn't matter what the answer is. If you're, if you're battling with this, it's still, it's still real for you. Do you know what I mean? So almost it becomes a bit of a moot point. Uh, uh, no one is saying that this isn't really, really difficult for people. Justin Lee puts it this way. Just because an attraction or drive is biological doesn't mean it's okay to act on. We all have inborn tendencies to sin in any number of different ways. If gay people's same-sex attraction were inborn, that wouldn't necessarily mean it's okay to act on them. And if we all agreed that gay sex is sinful, that wouldn't necessarily mean that same-sex attractions aren't inborn. Is it sin and does it have biological roots are two completely separate questions. Very good. Okay, number four. Gosh, I've got 12 to do. I'm only on number four. How are we doing? Are we all right? Okay. I just, I just know this is real. I, I just want... You to know I know that. This is not, you know, I feel, I feel awkward just reading the list because this is not about a list, you know what I mean? This is real lives and I, re- I realise that. Number four, how has this worked out in the Christian's life? What does it look like? I want to mention about our friend Andrew Bunt and who's going to be speaking in a few weeks' time. Andrew, this is how I would explain it. Andrew is a committed follower of Jesus And as a result of putting Jesus Jesus first in his life, although he is same-sex attracted, he has chosen to live a life, live a celibate, single life. Andrew would say, and he'll say this shortly for for us, Andrew would say that he has discovered the life-giving way that God has for him. There is a cost, but Jesus is more than worth it. And we've got Andrew Bunt coming on the 30th of October uh, on the Wednesday evening. He's going to be talking about his story of singleness and sexuality. 
and I would encourage you to come because there's, there's not, you know, he, he's walking this journey uh, in a way that I'm not. Number five, we must not underestimate the cost of being a disciple of Jesus. So I mentioned the cost for Andrew Bunt, and I think we, we, we forget this. All Christians who have chosen to follow Jesus choose a better life, a more fulfilling life. They choose the best life that they could ever know, a life of forgiveness, a life of joy in relationship with our Savior Jesus. Yet we must not underplay or underappreciate that there is a cost to following Jesus. And we are all called to carry our cross. The cost is different for each of us, but there is always a cost. It impacts the way we use our money, the choices and the priorities we make, the things we give up and the things we take on. But in return, we get Jesus. We receive him and his life-giving way that he has for us. I think we underplay that Christianity is a cost. But Jesus is way, way worth it. Number six, do you think gay people are wrong about their identity? I think we're all wrong about our identity. We're all wrong about our identity. Until we meet Jesus, not one person knows truly who we are. That's my story. I didn't know who I was until I truly understood and met Jesus. And when you meet Jesus, it's from that place as a child of God that you realize who you are and who you are called to be. Number seven, as some people might ask us, why are Christians so homophobic? There's a suggestion how to answer that question. A phobia is a fear or hatred or something. But the thing is that Jesus taught us as Christians to love even our, even our enemies. I'm not saying gay people are enemies, but obviously. But his perfect love drives out all fear. As Christians, we have no reason to hate or fear anyone. We are called to love everyone. And that's how we should respond to that question. And that's how we should be. We're not homophobic. We love everyone. Number eight. Are you saying that gay people have to change? Do you know what? I'm saying that everyone has to change. <laughs> we all have to change. We all have things that we have to change from. But it's what God does in our heart. It's not, it doesn't start there. It's when God speaks to us and leads us in our heart. We have things that we turn away from. If we generally want to follow Christ, I believe that's true. We all have to change. But it starts with coming on a story, coming on a journey, meeting a saviour, and then allowing him to speak to your heart. It's that way first. It doesn't make sense if it's not that way. Number nine. Well, I'm going to do number nine. Number nine, is, I'm going to ask the question, but I'm going to answer it next week. It's do we need to broaden our understanding of what it is to be feminine and masculine? And masculine. Next week, we talk about transgender. I will answer that question then. Number 10. What happens if someone in the church identifies as gay or someone starts coming to church that is gay? First, God loves them. We love them. God loves them. We love them. No conditions. God loves them unconditionally, and so should we. Jesus accepted those whose sexual morals were completely different to his own. So should we. In that environment, whatever someone's story or life choices, we want people to discover the transforming power of the gospel. That all of us, all of us equally need. We allow people to belong here. And we commit to walking with them on their journey as they discover God's love for them. Number 11. 
What advice would you give to parents? I would say come to the parents' evening on November the 3rd. Because this raises even more questions if you're a parent. Trying to care for your children, lead your children, help your children, serve your children, answer your children's questions, give a framework for your children to navigate the world around them. Uh, so come on the third. And uh, I think, I think we're, Hannah Clements, the youth leader here, and myself will be leading that evening. Number 12. I think it's important. I want to finish on this because I just feel it's really important. What about the problem of bullying? The bullying of people who would say they're gay or homosexual. I just want to say this. It is really, really important that we take a stand on this and that we're first in the line on this and that we stand against all types of bullying. Do you know if someone never gets saved, changes their decision or practice, but can testify when they came up against bullying, it was a Christian stood up for them. That is good news. And that's what Jesus, I believe, would have done. And that's to be celebrated. And that's what we should do, I believe. Let's stand together just as we pray. I realise it's an awful lot of information to, to process. As I say, if you wanted to ask any other questions... Uh, please email questions at woodsidechurch.com or email me directly. I mean, they will come, the questions come to me anyway. Uh, and uh, we will uh, try and answer those for you. Let's pray together, shall we? Jesus, we thank you that none of this is, uh, is without your help. Uh, we thank you, God, that you are a, a God who is for us. We thank you that in your words you are described as someone who is love. Yeah. Uh, full stop. Uh, we thank you that, that there is truth. Lord, I thank you that you don't uh, uh, leave us in this world without any, any uh, instruction on how to navigate questions and culture and scenarios. Lord, I thank you that we're not at a loss here. Although it raises really difficult things and difficult questions and confusion and, 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 and those types of things, Lord, I thank you that, that you don't leave... The, the page blank and say, well, good luck, you know, do your best. You say, no, no, this is my word. This is, this is the best way. This is the right way. It's difficult at times, but it's the best life you can ever have. Lord, I pray you would help us not to see truth as, as an obstacle, but actually a real blessing. And we pray, I just pray for anyone who is, is struggling with these situations or know someone close and Lord I pray for grace on them and blessing on them that you would pour your love and your goodness and that you would reveal to them that you're a saviour first that you're a saviour first and you love that person just as they are because you love all of us just as we are we all need a saviour Lord none of us are, are, are reliant on our own performance we're all reliant on the grace and the goodness of God and so we bless you that we stand on level ground in front of the cross, saying, thank you, Jesus, that you paid the price for all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a Woodside Church podcast. For more information, visit woodsidechurch.com.